and welcome to the June 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. Happy Pride Month, everybody. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to get more listeners. All right, first up this month, we had an avalanche of marriage equality news across the United States, and Art, you're going to take us through that? Yeah, uh, and the uh, headline on the front page of Law Notes, which uh, was written by you this month, yes. Matt, is From Sea to Shining Sea, Four <laughs> More State Marriage Bans Declared Unconstitutional as Lawyer Plans to File Case in Last State Without a Challenge. So let's summarize where we stand now on our marriage equality quest, which will probably end up in the U.S. Supreme Court next term. As of the end of May, there were 19 states where same-sex couples could marry or have their marriages recognized, plus the District of Columbia. Almost 44% of the U.S. population living in marriage equality jurisdictions as of the end of May. Uh, And just to recap this incredible month, first off, May 8th. In May 8th in Indiana, U.S. District Judge Richard Young Uh, in the case of Baskin against Bogan, issued a preliminary injunction requiring the state to recognize the marriage of one of the same-sex couples in the case because uh, one member of the couple is fatally ill. And he said she's entitled to be considered married. Uh, The state is seeking a stay from the Seventh Circuit, but it's been almost a month, and I see no sign that a stay has been issued. Uh, At least I could find no trace of one. Uh, The next day, May 9th, in Arkansas... Pulaski County Circuit Judge Chris Piazza ruled in a marriage equality case. Uh, Piazza is the first state court judge to rule in a marriage equality case since the middle of last year when we got rulings in New Mexico and New Jersey from state judges, which ended up in those state Supreme Courts with marriage equality rulings. So uh, Judge Piazza uh, ruled both on federal and state constitutional grounds, both due process and equal protection. He found that the right to marry is a fundamental right that includes the right of same-sex couples to marry. Uh, He also held as a matter of equal protection that there was no rational basis here for denying same-sex couples the right to marry or recognition for their marriages. Uh, And he did not issue a stay. And that resulted in a bit of litigation and a flood of people going to county clerk's offices. And clerks were unsure how to handle it. In Pulaski County, where uh, Judge Piazza ruled, the clerk's office uh, got into line and started issuing marriage licenses. But in some of the other counties, some of the clerks said, well, he's only a Pulaski County judge. We don't have to follow his ruling until we have a statewide precedent. Uh, Some counties were issuing licenses, some were not. Several hundred people did get married that week in Arkansas before, at the end of the week, the Supreme Court finally issued a stay. Uh, So that case is on appeal to the state Supreme Court. In the following week, on May 13th, we had two major events. First, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals held their oral argument in the combined cases of Bostick against Schaefer and Harris versus Rainey on the Virginia marriage ban. Uh, Arguing for the plaintiffs in that case were Ted Olson, who argued in the Supreme Court in the Prop 8 case, Uh, James Essex, the uh, director of the Lesbian Gay Rights Project at the ACLU, and Virginia Solicitor General Stuart Raphael, 
because the state is on our side in the Virginia cases. Uh, And Raphael made a very strong appearance. Uh, The appellants were represented by David Oakley, a private attorney retained by one of the clerks who's a defendant, and Austin Nimitz, an attorney with the Alliance, the former Alliance Defense Fund. Now it's called the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, which is an explicitly anti-gay uh, litigation group. Uh, so he was representing the other clerk who was a defendant in the case. And we had three circuit judges sitting on the case, Paul Neimeyer, who was uh, appointed by the first President Bush, uh, Roger Gregory, who was appointed to the Fourth Circuit on a recess appointment, by Bill Clinton, and then uh, reappointed by President George W. Bush as part of an overall deal to break a deadlock on the appointment of federal circuit judges, and an Obama appointee, Henry Floyd. Seems likely to me, having listened to the uh, webcast of the argument, that it's probably going to be a two-to-one, and how it's going to cut, whether it's going to be two-to-one, positive or negative, you can't say for sure, but it seems to me, better than even odds that it will be an affirmance of District Judge Arenda Wright Allen's ruling for the plaintiffs, which, if it comes out before the Tenth Circuit opinion, uh, would be the first federal court of appeals opinion uh, that we've had in favor of marriage equality. But the Tenth Circuit uh, heard arguments in the Oklahoma and Utah cases during April, so they may be out sooner. Uh, So we're all waiting for those court of appeals decisions to drop. They haven't yet as of the end of May. On May 13th, we had a decision by a U.S. magistrate judge in Idaho, uh, Candy Dale, who, uh, as a magistrate judges are, she was appointed by the district court. She's not a presidential appointee. Uh, in 2008, in the case of Latta versus Otter, uh, Otter being Butch Otter, the very <laughs> butch governor of Idaho, who was now being very butch about asking the Ninth Circuit to immediately go to on bank and appealing uh, this case. But... Uh, Judge uh, Judge Dale ruled both on due process and equal protection grounds. She said strict scrutiny under due process because it involves a fundamental right, heightened scrutiny under the Ninth Circuit's Smith-Klein decision. Uh, so she said uh, both on recognition and right to marry, she ruled for the plaintiffs. This was stayed by the Ninth Circuit pending appeal. And as I mentioned, Governor Otter has petitioned the Ninth Circuit to go directly to on-bank review But as of now, uh, the Ninth Circuit, in granting the stay here, said that they would have an expedited hearing. It will be at the beginning of September. Tight briefing schedule over the summer. No extensions of time. They already have the Nevada case, correct? They already have the Nevada case pending. That was a pre-Windsor decision uh, from 2012 where the district judge said that uh, he was bound by Baker versus Nelson, the old Minnesota case from the 1970s. Uh, Everyone ruling since... Windsor has said Baker versus Nelson is clearly no longer a binding precedent in light of Windsor. Uh, then, a few days later, on May 19th, we had two major decisions. Uh, first of all, in Oregon, in the case of Geiger versus Kitzhaber, U.S. District Judge Michael McShane, an Obama appointee and an openly gay federal district judge, ruled for the plaintiffs uh, in a case where the plaintiffs were essentially unopposed. Uh, In his opinion, uh, McShane likened the litigation to a friendly tennis match because both the governor and the attorney general of the state had announced that they weren't planning to appeal. They said, if the trial judge strikes down the Oregon marriage ban, we will start issuing marriage licenses. We're not going to file an appeal. There was an 11th-hour attempt by the National Organization for Marriage, which I always refer to as the misnamed National Organization for Marriage because it's the National Organization Against Same-Sex Marriage. Right. 
uh, they tried to intervene. They claimed that among their members was a county clerk who objected to issuing marriage licenses to same-sex couples, a voter who had voted for the Oregon Marriage Amendment and was upset that it was being challenged, and, let's see, a wedding services provider who was afraid that because of the non-discrimination law in Oregon, they would be compelled to provide services to same-sex couples against their religious views. Uh, so, uh, And none of the names of any of these people were disclosed. So we, we have to take it on uh, faith, uh, stating under oath the National Organization for Marriage says that they have And they don't members. have a very good record on name disclosure. No, they're, they're fighting it in Maine. <laughs> right. In fact, they've been fined by Maine for not uh, disclosing the names of their donors in the uh, uh, marriage referendum that was held. But uh, so Judge uh, McShane rejected their motion to intervene. And the day of the ruling, May 19th, the Ninth Circuit rejected their request for some kind of injunctive relief to stop the case from going forward until it could rule on their intervention motion. Uh, So uh, McShane issued his decision. People started getting married. But the National Organization Against Same-Sex Marriage is still busy. They uh, petitioned the Ninth Circuit to try to intervene when the Ninth Circuit said no. They filed a motion with the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and it's as of now, it's pending. Uh, as we're taping this, uh, the briefs have been submitted, and we're all waiting on Justice Kennedy, who's the Ninth Circuit Justice, whether he will decide the motion or whether he'll refer it to the full court. Presumably within a day or two of the taping of this uh, podcast, we'll know what the result is on that. But meanwhile, same-sex couples are marrying in Oregon. But on the same day, a federal district judge in Utah issued a very interesting ruling uh, In Utah, back in December, Judge Robert Shelby had struck down the same-sex marriage ban and refused to stay his ruling. The Tenth Circuit refused to stay his ruling. The state went up to the Supreme Court, and on January 6th, the Supreme Court stayed the ruling uh, a few weeks after it had been issued. And in the meantime, uh, something like 1,300 couples had gotten married, Mm -hmm. definitely more than 1,000. And when the Supreme Court issued their stay... Uh, Governor Gary Herbert said, well, because the stay revives the marriage ban, none of the people who got married during the period uh, prior to the stay will be recognized as married by the state. He said, we don't dispute that they were legally married, but under the uh, Utah Marriage Amendment, we cannot recognize their marriages because it says only the marriage of a man and a woman can be valid or recognized. So those marriages are on hold. And this didn't sit well with the people who got married. So a bunch of them, represented by the ACLU, filed a new lawsuit. They filed it in state court. And for some reason, the state removed it to federal court. Why they thought they would do better in federal court, I don't know. They ended up before Dale Kimball, a Clinton appointee. So a strategic mistake. You know, spin of the wheel, pull out the chit, and they got a democratically appointed judge. And uh, Judge Kimball, in fact, is on senior status at this point. He was appointed in the last century. He issued an opinion on May 19th. He said, under well-established Utah precedent, once someone is married, they have a vested right, a property interest in their marriage, and it violates due process to refuse to recognize it. Uh, And certainly under the Windsor case, to refuse to recognize a validly contracted marriage is problematical since that was what the Windsor case was all about. So he issued an order saying the state must recognize those marriages, but he gave a temporary 21-day stay, even though he analyzed the factors uh, that courts look at to decide whether to stay a ruling pending appeal, 
and he concluded that they had not been met. But he said, nonetheless, I understand why the state would want uh, an appellate review of this. So he gave him 21 days. Now, that's going to expire on June 9th. So on June 9th, people can uh, people will be recognized in Utah if they were married prior to the Supreme Court stay, unless the state can get the Ninth Circuit to stay that ruling. And uh, the state is busy trying to get that ruling stayed. Governor Herbert is up there on the uh, battlefront <laughs> crusading to save Utah from the calamity of same-sex yeah. marriage. But the next day, the very next day, in Pennsylvania, U.S. District Judge John E. Jones, a George W. Bush appointee who had been strongly recommended by Rick Santorum, one of the leading outspoken opponents of same-sex marriage in the country. Well, Judge Jones, in the case of Whitewood against Wolf, due process and equal protection, heightened scrutiny, the right to marry, and marriage recognition strikes down the Pennsylvania statutes. Pennsylvania did not have a marriage amendment, so it's just statutes. And everyone assumed that the Republican governor, Tom Corbett, who's an opponent of same-sex marriage, would appeal. But he mulled it over for 24 hours, and he announced he wasn't going to appeal. And after all, people had started getting married right away anyway because Judge Jones had not stayed his ruling. So there's no appeal in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania became the 19th state uh, where marriages are available. Uh, on June 1st, the Illinois marriage equality law went into effect. Now, pursuant to a federal district court order, marriages had been available in Cook County for several months. And the state attorney general issued an opinion saying that that order should be followed throughout the state, but it was not binding on the clerks. So some counties were doing it, some counties were not doing it. But as of Sunday, all counties were doing it. Uh, but since most clerks' offices are closed on Sunday, actually June 2 was the date, and there were marriages being performed all over Illinois on June 2. Yeah. Uh, what's to come? The Ninth Circuit will hear arguments in the Nevada and Idaho cases in September. Uh, in issuing the stay in Idaho, they announced September 8th, the week of September 8th. Then uh, they uh, subsequently announced the Nevada argument will be the following week. We're still waiting to hear when other circuits are going to be filing, uh, uh, setting up their uh, argument dates. We're waiting to hear about Texas. We're waiting to hear about the raft of cases in the Sixth Circuit where there's a marriage equality appeal in every state in the circuit. Uh, we're waiting to hear on the Seventh Circuit uh, whether they're going to have an argument on the uh, state's attempt to stay the Indiana ruling. Uh, new cases filed during May in Alabama, Alaska, Florida, Montana, and South Dakota. With the South Dakota filing, there was a marriage equality lawsuit seeking either recognition or the right to marry or both in every state with a ban, uh, except North Dakota. Right. And the attorney who brought the South Dakota case had been hearing from people in North Dakota who were interested. This attorney's based in Minneapolis. Uh, evidently, there aren't local attorneys brave enough to stick their noses out. But he's admitted to practice in these neighboring states. Right. And so he's talking to uh, potential plaintiffs and has announced that there will likely be a filing during June, in which case there will be, uh, you know, from sea to shining sea, there will be lawsuits on file. Yes, yes. And uh, we now have a sweep of the New England states with Pennsylvania. We have a sweep of the Northeast. Right. Uh, we have a, a cases pending in so many states where we're expecting decisions in the next few months. We're expecting a decision in Ohio where we have uh, recognition rulings, but the same judges now deciding on a uh, summary judgment motion uh, on a right to marry ruling. Uh, the ACLU has announced that it expects rulings on summary judgment motions 
any day from Florida and Wisconsin where the ACLU has lawsuits going on. Yeah. And there are several other cases around the country where motions have been argued. So it's just moving along. Now, going back to NAM, a lot of people on uh, social media said this was the worst month for NAM ever. Do you think yeah. that's a good characterization? Uh, I think the worst month for NAM was the month in which it was formed, since uh. it, uh, it was a quixotic <laughs> quest, uh, although it didn't seem like it back then. In yeah. fact, they were successful in, in uh, winning in a few state high courts uh, where we lost in New York. Uh, right. There were defeats in Maryland and in uh, Washington State. But interestingly, all three of those states now have marriage equality. Right. So NAM struck out in uh, the ballot box or in the legislature. Yeah. All right. Quite a month, Art. Thank you very much for that. And we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll be discussing a groundbreaking reversal from the Department of Health and Human Services concerning Medicare coverage for transgender health care. We're back discussing the huge reversal announced by the Department of Health and Human Services overturning its blanket ban on transgender-related surgeries for those receiving Medicare. Uh, On May 30th, they held that the existing national coverage determination dating from 1981 is no longer valid. Art, can you tell us some more? Yeah, uh, this this is the Obama administration's continuing mopping up process of, uh, of uh, enacting its agenda on uh, LGBT rights. Uh, and this is, this is one of those sort of weird outliers uh, because uh, the science has moved forward so far since 1981. So the situation was that in the 1970s, uh, the uh, Medicare program began to get requests uh, to cover transgender surgery. Uh, that is sex reassignment or gender affirmation surgery. It, it goes by different names in, in different jurisdictions and different uh, venues. Uh, and they referred the question uh, to uh, panels of experts and scientists. And in 1981, the answer they got back was, all right, this is new. It's controversial. There are all kinds of side effects. We don't know what the long-term impact of the surgery is. Uh, it's very experimental, and so they, they basically took the position Medicare isn't going to cover this. They said Medicare focuses on providing uh, sort of normal medical coverage, not these unusual things. And uh, in addition, state Medicaid programs were pretty much unanimously lined up against covering this, this as well yeah. back in the 1980s. So uh, the report that was compiled on this uh, was done in 1981. Uh, they didn't actually get around to publishing it as a national uh, coverage determination until 1989. But basically, Medicare would not pay for a gender reassignment surgery. Uh, but the Obama administration uh, issued a directive relatively early on. The president issued a directive that they were to uh, uh, try to achieve equality for transgender people. Uh, where they could do so without legislative change. And this was one area where uh, finally uh, this has been done uh, by virtue of an appeal of a denial. Uh, A transgender woman uh, who was not named in the opinion because actually by law in publishing their national coverage determinations and uh, uh, appeal decisions, they're barred from naming the parties in order to preserve confidentiality. But the organizations representing this individual issued a press release. So we know her name from that, a transgender woman named Denny Mallon, uh, 
who is insured under the Medicare program, and her doctors have recommended surgery. They have diagnosed her as transgender, and they have said that the uh, surgery is part of the treatment she needs. It's medically necessary. She was turned down, of course, under the national coverage determination, which is binding on all uh, Medicare, uh, on the Medicare agency, uh, the Center for Medicare Services. Uh, and she appealed. And she's represented by the ACLU, uh, Gay and Lesbian Advocates and Defenders, National Center for Lesbian Rights, the civil rights attorney Mary Lou Bulkey, who filed the administrative uh, appeal on her behalf. And the uh, Medicare agency turned to the Center for Medicare Services and said, uh, do you want to defend the current ban? And they said, no. They said, we're not taking a position on it. It's up to you guys to figure out what's going what's gonna to happen here. So the Departmental Appeals Board took evidence, uh, and they, the Obama administration wasn't going to defend the existing ban. Uh, they weren't going to advocate one way or the other. They said, do what the medical evidence tells you to do. Get the latest evidence. And so uh, the party submitted lots of expert evidence. And they basically found that the, all the 1981 findings that uh, had been the basis for the national coverage decision were obsolete. And we look at that decision, uh, and it's quoted in this opinion, transsexual surgery for sex reassignment of transsexuals is controversial because of the lack of well-controlled long-term studies of the safety and effectiveness of the surgical procedures and attendant therapies for transsexualism, the treatment is considered experimental. Moreover, there is a high rate of serious complications for these surgical procedures. For these reasons, transsexual surgery is not covered. Well, attacking these one at a time, they found, first of all, whether something is controversial is irrelevant. Uh, whether it's controversial or not, the issue is whether it is medically necessary treatment and it is appropriate to be covered by Medicare as a safe and effective uh, therapy. So they said the fact that it's controversial is no longer an issue for us, so we're going to go based on the science. So they said there are now well-controlled long-term studies. Uh, this is a procedure that's been done for decades now, uh, since the first documented uh, sex change operation was Christine Jorgensen in Denmark in the 1950s. But it really started getting done in the U.S. with some more frequency starting in the 1960s and 70s. But since the 80s, it has become a routine procedure in those medical centers that specialize in it. It's not something you can just walk into any hospital because you need someone who is specialized in the procedure. But they said a lot of the component parts of the surgery are also done in other kinds of procedures that are covered uh, by Medicare. And so we have a record that many of these procedures are well-recognized, well-established, safe, effective. We have various studies that have been published showing the impact over time. Uh, serious complications, no. They said there is no record of serious complications. If you actually look now at several decades of the performance of these procedures, you find that whatever complications they are tend to be minor and easily remedied. Uh, there are no major problems, and there's no indication that they are prevalent. There's a high rate. In fact, there's a low rate of complications and almost no serious complications. Uh, so they said on every finding back in 1981, we now find the opposite. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, we are basically wiping out 
the existing national coverage determination. Now, it's up to the Centers for Medicare Studies, uh, Medicare Services, if they want to go ahead and adopt some new uh, procedure. But in discussing the impact of this decision, the appeal board said, what this means is nobody can deny coverage for this procedure in reliance on the old coverage decision. Whether someone is entitled to coverage now has to be decided on a case-by-case basis, which basically means you need to have a diagnosis. And this was one of the uh, issues back in 1981. They said there was no uniformity of view of how to diagnose gender dysphoria back then, which the ACLU protested at the time. They said, sure there is. You know, there are definitions out there. By 1981, people had some idea how to do it. But by now, of course, it's very well established. Uh, So they said, obviously, a doctor has to do the diagnosis. It has to be in accord with accepted standards in the medical profession. And there has to be a finding by the doctor that this is a medically necessary procedure for the individual. Now, this ruling is its sort of late to the game because we've seen over the past decade or so a, an accumulation of precedent on this issue. We've seen cases coming out of the federal district and circuit courts now with the most recent First Circuit ruling, although that one is now being reconsidered on bank. But we've had quite a few rulings saying that under the Eighth Amendment, uh, transgender inmates are entitled to treatment, including potentially surgery, uh, sex reassignment surgery. Uh, we've had a ruling by the U.S. Tax Court that expenses for sex reassignment surgery are deductible medical expenses, the standard for which is that it is necessary and safe and effective treatment. Yeah. It's basically the same issue here. Yeah. On a personal note, I worked on that trial the summer of that that was at trial. The tax court. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the government attorneys fought ferociously that this is not a real medical problem. This is not, uh, you know, they, they this should not be counted as medical care and... So I can. This is this is a sea change yeah. <laughs> from from what I saw that summer yeah, from the is, federal government. Of course, that summer was during the Bush administration. It was, yep, yeah. oh seven. Oh seven. So yeah. uh, you know, quite a difference uh, between that and the approach of the Obama administration to these yeah. issues. So uh, this doesn't necessarily mean that every person who's qualified for Medicare and wants a sex change operation is going to get it covered. Yeah. They still have to jump through the hoops of diagnosis and the finding that it's medically necessary because. Among the specialists in this area, they say that there are degrees of gender dysphoria, and some people can do adequately without surgery. And, of course, there are some people who don't want surgery. Uh, So this doesn't mean that everyone is going to have surgery. But it does mean that there's no longer a blanket ban and that now the Medicare agency should be receptive in cases where a doctor has made a diagnosis and recommended the treatment. Mm. I mean, they may want second opinions, but... I think that uh, as for any major surgery, you're usually asking for second opinions. Yeah. But uh, this is, as you say, a sea change. Yeah. It was the same week as uh, Laverne Cox was on the cover of Time with the yes. headline, Transgender Tipping Point. Yes. Uh, so quite a week. Well, also, you know, we, we, we should note that the, this continuing trend, and almost every month we have new cases where federal courts under Title VII are saying that discrimination against transgender individuals is sex discrimination yeah. covered by Title VII. Yeah. Uh, so you might ask, do we need uh, do we need ENDA in terms of the gender identity coverage? And the answer is yes, because federal courts can change their minds about things like that. So it's good to get it in the statute itself. All right.
All right, thank you very much. We'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing an important New York case on the parental rights of spouses. All right, we're back discussing the case of Wendy G.M. versus Aaron G.M., a trial court opinion out of the Rochester area in upstate New York, finding that the spouse of the biological mother of a child is also that child's legal parent under the longstanding common law marriage presumption, even when all the statutory requirements are not met for a consent form authorizing artificial insemination. Um, I can talk a little bit about this one. I wrote this article this month. Um, some interesting facts on this uh, this lesbian couple. Um, they were married in Connecticut in 2011, or excuse me, before uh, before July 2011. The facts don't say the exact date, but it was before marriage became legal uh, here in New York. And uh, they decided to have a child in October 2011, um, and that was when they both signed a consent form agreeing to artificial insemination uh, procedures. Now, this consent form uh, has the following language. We declare that any child or children born as a result of a pregnancy following artificial insemination shall be accepted as a legal issue of our marriage. Uh, the problem is uh, they did not get a notary to, uh, a notary to uh, what do you call it, uh, authorize, notarize, notarize the, the signatures. And uh, that's one of the requirements by the statute for the consent form to be effective. Uh, and this fact became very important later on. Uh, I guess I'll not, I won't fast forward quite yet. Uh, so anyway, one of the spouses got pregnant, and uh, uh, they, the other spouse stopped having artificial insemination uh, attempts, and they, uh, you know, proceeded with this pregnancy. Uh, the fertility clinic records demonstrated that both were involved in the medical appointments. Uh, they went, they both went to the pre-birth classes, breastfeeding classes, baby care, CPR classes. Uh, they, they had a joint, uh, baby shower. Uh, the birth mother celebrated, uh, the impending birth with a very, uh, ironic Facebook post considering what happened later. She said, this is our year. Our daughter will be lawfully. Our daughter will lawfully have two mommies when she arrives, and a family that's recognized wherever we go in the U.S. I love you. Uh, when you go through fertility and have a partner, they have to sign off and agree to the fertility treatment, so that there is no question that you've both agreed to have a child. End quote. Uh, the spouse was present at the birth. Uh, the couple jointly decided the name of the child, and they gave it a hyphenated last name. Uh, and both spouses were listed on the birth certificate. However, uh, within a week of the uh, birth of the child, uh, the couple decided to break up, and the non-birth mother uh, spouse moved out of the house, uh, and they commenced, uh, divor divorce proceedings commenced in December 2013, um, and this was apparently a very acrimonious breakup, and uh, the birth mother had, did not want the... Uh, the other spouse to have any custody rights of the child or any access to the child whatsoever. Um, so this was this issue came up to the uh, Supreme Court, uh, which is the trial court here in New York, a Supreme Court justice. Uh, Richard Dolinger had to decide this case. And he sort of notes early in the uh, opinion that there's sort of two paths here that he has to consider in making the, in making the decision. Uh, the first has to do with the fact that 
the New York statutes for the, you know, concerning family law. It's called the Domestic Relations Law and the Family Court Act. Haven't been updated in decades. Uh, and uh, neither of them uh, have a definition of parent in them, uh, which has caused numerous problems for New York trial courts, uh, New York courts all up, up and down the system uh, in, in deciding some of these gay parenting cases because there's just no guidance from the legislature. Uh, the other problem has to do with uh, a sort of a line of Court of Appeals cases that are not terribly great for gay parents uh, in New York. Uh, they've, been, they've sort of looked at these uh, old statutes very narrowly and have uh, sort of said that it really biology or adoption are the only routes to being a legal parent in New York. Um, now, the other, the other thing that he had at his disposal, though, was this marriage presumption, which is a common law uh, presumption in New York law. Um, and that, that presumption is that if a child is born while a couple is married, it is, uh, and legitimacy is the key word here, it's a sort of an old archaic term, but it's the term that uh, is still sort of used in the law, uh, that child is a legitimate child of both of those parents. Um, so he begins by looking at, again, the Domestic Relations Law, the Family Court Act, and uh, he says, you know, he concludes that both of those uh, are, are written to talk about opposite-sex parents. Um, and because they have these tests that look at uh, figuring out if someone is a father or not. And he sort of concludes that, that these statutes were written to really determine fatherhood and not really to determine who might be the parent uh, in a lesbian uh, couple situation. Um, he then looks at the uh, New York Artificial Insemination Statute and this requirement of a notary uh, notarizing uh, consent form for artificial insemination. And he says, uh, you know, the intent behind the statute wasn't really to try to, you know, cut a lesbian co-parent out of, out of, out of the picture. Uh, you know, it was really more set up, again, for opposite-sex parents and so that to make sure that the father was on notice that, the, that his wife was, or his partner was having... Uh, an artificial insemination procedure done so that he'd be on notice uh, of this uh, going on. Uh, and he said there's really no question here that this couple knew what was going on and intended to have this child, uh, even though they did not have a notary uh, notarize the, the form. Um, and after looking at these statutes, he sort of concludes that the actual more relevant statute for this case is the Marriage Equality Act, uh, which passed in uh, 2011. Uh, and there's some language in there that no law, common law provisions relating to marriage shall differ because the married couple here have the same sex. Um, now, the only thing he sort of has to re-examine in conjunction with the, the Marriage Equality Act is this 2010 case from uh, the Court of Appeals, New York's highest court. Uh, and in that case, there was a couple that had a civil union in Vermont uh, that then, uh, but then had, came back to New York and had a child here in New York, and the question was, was the non-biological mother the, the, the legal parent of that child? And the Court of Appeals very explicitly said, you know, equitable, the, you know, the non-biological uh, parent in that case was saying, was trying to get the Court of Appeals to adopt this equitable estoppel theory of parenthood, uh, which some of, several other states have. Uh, and the Court of Appeals rejected that very explicitly and sort of said, you know, this is not something, this is not a route to parenthood in New York, and we're not going to adopt it as another 
separate route to parenthood in New York. Uh, they saved uh, the non-biological mother's uh, parenthood rights uh, via this uh, theory of comedy, uh, the principle of comedy, uh, because they had a Vermont civil union. And uh, the Vermont Supreme Court had very explicitly said couples in Vermont civil unions that have children together uh, during the civil union are both the parents of the child, the children that they, they have during their civil unions. Um, and because New York, uh, through this principle of comedy, New York also has to recognize this couple uh, that had a Vermont civil union. So the couple, uh, the non-biological parent, was saved in that case, uh, not via New York law, but really through because of the fact that they had a Vermont civil union. Uh, now, since the Court of Appeals made that decision, uh, New York adopted marriage equality legislatively, and uh, Justice Dolinger thinks that that is sort of the critical uh, piece of this case. Um, and he finds, and that's why he finds it so distinguishable from the Deborah H. Uh, case. Um, uh, these, this couple was not in a civil union. They were in a marriage that they, they did get in Connecticut. But at, uh, at this point, uh, it doesn't matter whether you're married, uh, what, what marriage equality state you're married in. New York recognizes it. Uh, there was no, they weren't seeking to uh, obtain parental rights here under a po post-birth estoppel, excuse me, but rather only to enforce a pre-birth form of estoppel conditioned upon the undisputed fact that the couple was married in a marriage both recognized in New York and a marriage that is now legally permitted in New York. Um, with, with all these facts put together, Justice Dollinger says that the Court of Appeals would not mandate that compliance with the artificial insemination statute is the only means for a married, non-biological spouse to acquire parental status for a child born by artificial insemination of their spouse. Uh, and he sort of talks about, you know, what a sort of crazy result would be if the opposite were true, because it would mean that a child's parentage for their entire life depends on whether or not a notary public was present when uh, the party signed the consent, um, which seems, you know, it does seem sort of crazy. Uh, so uh, with that said, he, uh, he uh, ordered an immediate conference to discuss access to the child and ordered temporary monthly maintenance and legal fees for the non-biological uh, mother of, uh, of this child. Um, so it looks like, Art, we have equality here in New York. Well, uh, well, we, we, <laughs> well it's, a, it's an interesting thing because he says uh, this presumption uh, that a child born to a married woman is also the legal uh, child of her spouse, uh, the, the presumption was originally based on the idea with an opposite-sex couple that uh, we we sort of presume that people are obeying the law, that people are not having sex outside of marriage. Right. Therefore, that the child is the child of the husband without needing to prove it. Uh, but uh, here, you know, how would you prove it? Uh, you could prove it by the consent form. Uh, but he said, you know, we, we recognize there might be difficulties here. Uh, so it's, we're going to make this a rebuttable presumption under the common law, not an irrebuttable presumption. Right. So if the bio uh, mother can prove by a preponderance of the evidence that her spouse was not intended to be the parent of the child, uh, then maybe she won't be. But, you know, you look at the facts in this case and the, the Facebook posting, the consent form they signed, albeit without a, uh, a notary present, but it's a piece of evidence, uh, certainly the way they behaved. 
uh, it seems pretty clear. Now, interestingly, they could have also used comedy. He could have said, well, they were married in Connecticut, and Connecticut presumes, presumably uh, it, it may even be an irrebuttable presumption in Connecticut, that a child born to a married woman, regardless whether she's married to a woman or a man, uh, the child would be considered the uh, the child of the spouse as well. Uh, we could have just done it through comedy, but he doesn't go there. He he says now, you know, with the Marriage Equality Act, we can do this all under New York law. We can say we have a common law rule. We'll apply it to same-sex couples as well. Uh, so I think it is, as you say, it's equality. It's uh, the Marriage Equality Law says that all common law rules affecting marriage have to apply in the same way to same-sex and different-sex couples. So the marriage presumption applies. But if our legislature, you know, would get off the stick and would modernize uh, the uh, domestic relations law and the Family Court Act, we wouldn't have to go through jumping all through all these hoops. Yeah, I mean, this was twenty-eight this pages of analysis to yes. get to the conclusion. Right, and, and he isn't the first judge to come to this conclusion in New York. He's the first one to publish an extended opinion about it, though. Yeah. All right, good stuff. Thank you very much. Uh, we'll take our last short break, and when we uh, return, we'll be discussing another New York case. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, this one out of an appellate court reducing a conviction for an erotic, erotic asphyxi- asphyxiation from second degree murder to manslaughter. Uh, we're back for our last uh, segment, the of note segment for this edition. We had a bit of an interesting ruling from an appellate court in New York during May about what the crime is when one accidentally murders their sex part- partner by asphyxiation. Can you tell us more about this art? Yeah, uh, this is a bit macabre, but uh, Larry Davis and Richard McCoy were having sex. And evidently, McCoy was looking for a high from erotic asphyxiation, and so uh, Davis tied a piece of clothing around his neck and started putting on pressure while they were having sex. And uh, according to Davis, uh, according to his testimony, he was frustrated at being unable to quickly achieve orgasm, and he kept at it, and he kept tightening the screws, and uh, the opinion does not indicate whether he achieved orgasm, but it does indicate that Mr. McCoy died of asphyxiation. And, I mean, open and shut case, uh, Davis basically choked his partner to death. Uh, so he was prosecuted for second-degree murder. And uh, I think the prosecution here assumed that they didn't need any other evidence. They had, uh, you know, McCoy's uh, death. They had Davis's confession. He was the one that tied the cloth and, and put on the pressure. They had a medical uh, examiner testify about how long it took to cut off the pressure to cause death. And they figured, you know, take it to the jury. We don't need any more evidence as to his intent. It can be inferred. Even though uh, Davis on the stand, and uh, he did, well, he tell, told the police that he didn't intend to kill the victim. He said he didn't mean it. This wasn't about, it wasn't intended to be, you know, erotic murder. Uh, so, and there was no evidence that there was some kind of falling out between Davis and McCoy, and that uh, this was a ploy by McCoy, uh, by Davis, to do in his partner or something. In fact, it's, there's a, no indication in the opinion whether they were a same-sex couple or they were just incidental sex partners. Uh, so at any rate, the jury convicted of second-degree murder, and uh, Mr. Davis appealed. He said, but I didn't intend to murder him, and for second-degree murder, you have to show an intent to kill. 
And the appellate division was convinced by that. They said, yeah, the prosecutor put in no evidence that he intended to kill, that it was an accident, and accidental murder is manslaughter. So we send it back to the trial judge for resentencing. Uh, I thought it was, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's rare to read a court opinion about something like this. And, uh, you know, people can think about whether it's, it's correct or not, but as a matter of legal analysis, it seems perfectly sound, and it was a unanimous ruling by the Appellate Division Second Department and People Against Davis uh, decided on May 7th. All right. Thank you very much for that tidbit, Art. We're, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, to read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Please follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or find us on Facebook. Uh, if you're here in the New York area, I hope you'll join us for our many Pride Month events the next few weeks. Thanks again, and we will see you later this summer.